I want to welcome all of you to this evening's program. The Penn Women's Committee is five years old. All year long, we've been wondering how we could mark the occasion. Tonight's program and two programs that will follow are the result. A looking back at the last 30 years of feminism and its influence on women's writing and the influence of women's writing on feminism. The Women's Committee was founded in 1986 by a number of women in Penn who felt the absence of a strong voice despite their approximate numerical equality with male writers in Penn. Its aim was to provide a place where writers could talk about women's issues in literature and where they could develop ties with women writers in other countries. To a large extent, this describes the work we have been doing for the last five years. We have put on a series of public events during that time that explored the world of women's writing. I'll mention just a few to give you an idea of their diversity. Lost Women Writers resurrected the work of Ivy Litvinoff, Bessie Head, Eve Langley, and Helen Adams. Our Books, Our Bodies was a program on reproductive rights where scores of women read from their works. Women Writing About Other Women was a panel discussion. Four biographers discussing their work and the lives of their subjects. Another panel discussion on women and war used the novel Cassandra by Krista Wolfe as a base. This exploration has continued at our smaller, regular meetings where we've examined such topics as women in reviews and violence, to, violence against women in literature. We heard from one writer on the personal consequences of writing autobiography and from a member of Amnesty International on women's rights, not as civil rights, but as human rights. We've also had frequent guests from abroad. We've met with women writers and scholars from all over the globe. A Nigerian novelist who's written 19 books, a literary critic and translator from the Soviet Union, an Indian scholar who helped put together a huge anthology on women writing in India, 600 BC to the early 20th century. And no matter where our guests are from and how established they are, the message is always the same. Women writers don't count in their country. That's why our second mandate to establish an international network of women writers has seemed so vital to the work of the committee. At international congresses and at informal meetings, some of us have met with other women and talked and mapped out strategies. 
But the process of establishing a network has been slow and often frustrating. Now we can report a success. At the recent Congress in Vienna, Meredith Tax succeeded in getting international pen to establish a woman's committee, one of its four permanent committees. As its first... <laughs> Yay for Meredith. As its first president, Meredith has been mandated to form a board and raise money to bring together women writers from the developing world with their counterparts from the industrial West. The next step is funding, and she hopes to get a grant from UNESCO to begin the task of putting this together. This has been the work of the first five years of the committee to promote a greater recognition of women's literature and to forge international links. The committee will continue to work on these issues and others too. There are many hazards for women writers. Here at home, the shrinking economy, the assault from the right on women in art, internationally, poverty and repression and political turmoil, Whatever happens out there, we know that women in every corner of the globe will be struggling to find their voices. As women and as writers, we must continue to provide a place where we can help each other raise those voices loud enough to be heard. I'd like to finish with a word of thanks to the staff of Penn, to Karen Kennerly, Executive Director, for her encouragement and support, and to Pamela Pierce for the time and effort she has given to the work of the committee and for her good nature. <laughs> now I'd like to introduce our moderator, E.M. Broner, who will open the program by giving a background to the Golden Notebook and also introduce our panel. Esther Brona is a founding member of the committee and currently vice chair. She has published five books, has received two NEAs and a Wonder Woman Award. And through her efforts, we now have a column written by members of the committee that appears regularly in the Women's Review of Books. Thank you.
Welcome. In the early 60s, there was a stirring of women's consciousness in fiction and essay. In 1962, the Golden Notebook was published in the States. In 63, the Golden Notebook came out in paperback the same year of Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. Both writers had gone through the 50s and documented that time. Lessing wrote of the Cold War, the 20th Soviet Congress, Hungary, the electrocution of the Rosenbergs um, in 53, uprisings in Africa. Friedan speaks of the isolation and infantilizing of women during that past decade of the 50s, a decade that McCall's magazine dubbed togetherness. Quote, the limitless world of women has shrunk to the cozy walls of home, mourns Friedan. She ends her book, The Feminine Mystique, by worrying about the replacement of matters of substance in the women's magazines with trivia. She contrasts a short story at the very beginning of the decade uh, called Sarah and the Seaplane about an adventurous young woman who solos in her plane and in her life. At the end of the 50s, there is another typical story called The Sandwich Maker, about a happy, the adventures of a happy homemaker. We went from adventure to subservience in one decade. Quote, the end of the road, wrote Friedan about women's fiction, is the disappearance of the heroine altogether as a separate self, the subject of her own story. The Golden Notebook appears with woman as a separate self and the subject of her own story. The opening line of the Golden Notebook is, two women were alone in the London flat. What startled us was women and alone. This opening line is quoted in the beginning of the review in 1962 in Books of the Times by Orville Prescott that Meredith brought me in the stormy weather so I could read it to you. The reviewer calls the book, quote, a waste of talent, one monstrous book about four times as long as most novels into which Lessing has managed to crowd nearly all the faults that are driving many readers away from modern fiction. <laughs> what are the faults? These are the false Prescott. Prolixity, pretentiousness, and pseudo-profundity, and wallowing in Freudian speculation, and shouting dirty words, and groveling in sex ad nauseum. Besides this, he also mentions nymphomania and a lack of sense of humor. Where were we in the nation when these revolutionary works appeared? The revolution in the land was civil rights. Kennedy was in office. Marilyn Monroe died. It was a glitzy time in Washington. Jackie, the glamorous representative of women, showed the television audience the renovated White House, while her husband dealt with the jailing of Martin Luther King in July, with the first American to be ambushed in, in Vietnam. with the governor of Mississippi who defied the federal court order to integrate and with the riots at Ole Miss. By October, the US revealed that Russian missile sites were in Cuba and imposed an arms embargo. That is the gender separation of the early 60s. The men repair to the smoking room and the women to the boudoir. The men work on matters of state and the woman is still in the home even if it is the White House. I'm doing the togetherness thing. I'm having babies. I'm trying to read something besides Doc Spark, Spock and the Seuss books. 
I see that the bestsellers are Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with its villainous nurse killing the free spirits of her inmates, Anthony Burgess's Clockwork's Orange with its sexism, Philip Roth's Letting Go, James Baldwin's Another Country, John Barth's The Sotweed Factor, Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Some of these were fine books, but there were few women honored on the shelves of the bookstores. And the art scene was pop art. Warhol, Liechtenstein, Jasper Johns, Robert Indiana, a male movement. And the films, romances on and off screen. Cleopatra, Elizabeth Taylor, and Robert Burton, and Lawrence of Arabia. We women had no real models nationally or in literature, in the popular culture, and we were afraid. The big boys were playing war. Khrushchev blinked. Uh, wrote the press, as the Cuban Missile Crisis is settled. In the meantime, we were worrying about bomb shelters, about our children. We were not interested in eyeball to eyeball or in blinking. By 63 in the States, when we have Lessing's paper back in hand, we hear in the background gunfire, for Kennedy was assassinated in November, Oswald killed, Ruby dies immediately afterward, and even bigger boys take over that hulking, impatient Westerner Johnson. I looked up the Modern Language Association conference calendars for December of 62, 61, 2, and 3. Did they reflect in any way the stirrings in the land, civil rights, the beginning of the women's movement then? The Modern Language Association has a membership of about 8,000, and these academicians are the theologians who meet annually to decide the literary canon. In the early 60s, the MLA was stodgy, stuffy, and predictable. American Studies Association, the most modern of the discussion groups, had a panel, the cowboy, the detective, the spaceman as American literature. American lit is men, British modern men, British romantic men, Victorian men, comparative lit men. In addition, at the MLA, the booksellers display their wear advertising the program of the MLA. From every publishing house on every list are works by male authors. The prestigious contemporary prose reader that uh, Stiller and Northrop Fry edited had 60 authors, all men. All English professors were teaching prose as a male domain. Suddenly, there is this book by a woman author, born in Rhodesia, then in 1919, moved to Great Britain in 49, her book appearing 13 years later when she's in her early 40s. In the later Bantam paperback, there is the famous photo by Jill Kremnitz, Lessing's thick, dark hair pulled severely back, the gray threading through the black, the big back knot, the serious demeanor, thick eyebrows, perfect nose. She could be a Victorian writer from her photo. The book was a Victorian weight. As you thumb through it also, whole pages were numbingly unparagraphed. But the book was not Victorian in its women heroes characters. These two women are not only independent, free women as the section headings call them, but they are Marxist and Jewish, the most peripheral to the British sense of propriety. What was astonishing to me then, a young woman with four babies going back to graduate school, was that Lessing had written a Kunstroman, a book about a woman writer, her sensibilities, her plying of the trade. The men were writing of the artist as a young man, a young dog, but there were no women's Kunstroman. It took women seriously. Women were taking themselves seriously. Anna Wolfe kept not only one journal, but four, and taught some of us to document ourselves. We made a calendar of our lives. We became the subject of our own history. Ultimately, at the MLA, there was a Doris Lessing Society, a Doris Lessing panel, even a Doris Lessing newsletter.
So now Doris Lessing is canonized. She may deny her role in altering us, but looking seriously out at us from her books, she was there with or without a tent, intent and began it all. I'm going to describe uh, what's going to happen here for a moment before I introduce our panel. Uh, each speaker will speak for about 12 minutes, uh, and then uh, we will, uh, they'll speak to each other, uh, address one another for about 15 minutes. And then we'll have a question period, and the audience has been given cards to write their questions on so they can come up with these precise questions. <laughs> And uh, we'll line up at a mic. We'll uh, take this mic down, uh, and you'll hold it, and you'll have a, a floor mic. And then we have to leave here before 10.30 for a, re uh, a reception outside. Now to introduce my distinguished panels, if I can find <laughs> that information. going to have to introduce themselves. <laughs> okay. Uh, on my left, and the first person who will speak tonight uh, is uh, Vivian Gornick, who is an essayist and a memoirist. Her most recent book uh, was a memoir, Fierce Attachments. Uh, she writes for the New York Times and the Village Voice also. Um, the second speaker is Mary Gordon, on my right. And... Um, Mary Gordon has written four novels, Final Payments, The Company of Women, Men and Angels, The Other Side, a collection of stories, Temporary Shelter, and a, co a collection of essays, Good Boys and Dead Girls. She is Macintosh Professor of English at Barnard College. The third, um, the third uh, speaker is Elizabeth Janeway. I can't seem to find her. Oh, wait, here it is. She's published six novels, of which Daisy Kenyon was made into a movie. Uh, third choice was a book of the month. She has four books for children and five works of nonfiction, including Man's World, Woman's Place, and Powers of the Week. She's past vice president of Penn and past president of Authors Guild. Um, Margot Jefferson, who's seated next to Vivian Gornick, is going to end us astonishingly, and Margaret Jefferson's criticism has appeared in Grand Street, The Nation, The Village Voice, The New York Times, Book Review, and other magazines. She's working on a book of essays and teaches literature and writing at Columbia. Thank you. Uh, Vivian. Well, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what you want to say. Uh, I'm sure I'm safe in saying that all of us up here, and probably most of you down there, uh, believe that The Golden Notebook uh, is a book that embodies uh, the history of, of the contemporary feminist movement more, well, I believe in certain ways, certainly more than the second sex. I, I, I believe it really does embody it. I believe two things about The Golden Notebook. One is that um, it, it is uh, it's an essence of the gestalt that finally became the contemporary feminist movement. And the other is that it is a book that could not have been written today. There is no woman of Doris Lessing's talent, drive, intelligence, and sheer exhaustive endurance at the typewriter who could write what she wrote in the Golden Notebook today. And I'd like to make the case uh, for that. Between those two statements, I think, are the 30 years that have brought us here tonight. Um, 
So let me start this way. When I was 22 years old and uh, a year out of college and spending a year in Europe, I wrote a series of letters to my mother, my romantic mother, back home in New York. Uh, and in these letters, I was um, thinking at my life. I was writing to tell her what I imagined my life would be. They were the letters written by a girl who took herself seriously, who wanted to lead a serious life, and who wanted to lead a life um, devoted to making art. This was, the, this was my, my, my conception of myself. And I wrote repeatedly, one way or another, that uh, I knew I had a great work to do in this life. If only I could find the right partner the man who would stand beside me and behind me, who would be there solidly to share with me this great event of our common life, right? So these letters were right, I mean, as, uh, now, I was 22 years old and the year was 1958. At the same time that I was writing these letters, Doris Lessing, some 16 or 17 years older than me, and in London, was writing a book that said exactly the same thing, right? This was the picture that we who took ourselves seriously had of ourselves. This meant liberation. My mother had said, love is the most important thing in a woman's life, and had ended it there. Doris Lessing and I were saying, Love, a great work is necessary, and love is necessary in order to complete it. That was the essence of the position in which we stood. And it was a position that I was romantic about, she was a little bit more bitter about, uh, and in between a whole range of people had a whole range, adopted a whole range of postures about it, but none of us disagreed on the elements involved. Let me take you to a writer like Claire Booth Luce, who wrote an infamous, <laughs> you, can, you can take us there in detail, <laughs> I'll, I'll, only, I'll only take you by um, alluding to it. Now, Claire Booth Luce wrote an infamous, brittle, hard, funny, clever uh, play called The Women, uh, in which, which was not a far cry from what we were talking about, right? It's another version of it. In other words, those women were ambitious too. The center of the bitchery in the women is the question of the ambitious woman. Now that woman is ambitious for status, position, glamour, um, and being independent of her husband. And all the women in, in the women take her down for it. Uh, it essentially says the same thing. The question is ambition and the relation to men. Now take a writer like Elizabeth Hardwick, and altogether at the other end of the, of, of the here, is, here is Luce at the hard, brittle, popular culture end, and here is Hardwick at the Mandarin intellectual end. And she writes a book of essays called Seduction and Betrayal, which is all about women in writing or women writing. It is all about women in literature or women who want to make literature or women who have a relation to the idea of leading a serious life in the arts. She writes about Jane Carlyle, Dorothy Wordsworth, Zelda Fitzgerald. She writes about Ibsen's women. She writes, that's, that's, that's the, the scheme of seduction and betrayal. And behind every one of those essays is the firm and powerful belief 
that a woman's life alone on her own is a second-rate one. It is an inferior item. It is a thing to stand alone, it will not do. In every single essay, the question of women's relation to, to the men who will either free them by loving them into that life or deny them that freedom uh, by making their lives bitter and sterile uh, is, is, is really the key to the position. It was a quintessential position of women who took themselves seriously in the 1950s. Now, from my romantic letters to Elizabeth Hardwick's bitter seduction and betrayal, in between was a whole roster of attitudes that were cynical, nostalgic, sentimental. Right, we all, in the let my mother presented me with these letters last year, and I reread them all. And I saw the, the, the intensity, the romance, uh, the romanticness of, uh, of, the, uh, of the writing. And I saw that it was in the romanticizing, it wasn't in the romantic, it was in the romantic sentences that I undercut at every turn of the way my right to be taken seriously. It was in Luce's cynicism that the right to consider the problem she laid before us was undercut and it took itself away. And in, in, in Hardwick's bitter and odd nostalgic bitterness, she undercuts the essence of what she's talking about. Now here comes Doris Lessing in 1962, and she does what nobody else had ever done before. She doesn't do any of the things I've just said. She's not romantic, she's not bitter, she's not nostalgic, she's not sentimental, she's certainly not cynical. She is straightforward, deadly earnest, relentless, and exhaustive. <laughs> she stands there looking at the woman I have just described, and for 600, nearly 600 bloody pages, we are forced to look with all the fullness that she can bring to it through indeed the genius of the four notebooks, the four books in which she says, I cannot put myself together. There is no way this creature can ever integrate. I will present her full in all her separateness, in all her discretion, in all her inability to integrate. I will give you the full, as full a picture as I can, as exhaustive a picture as I can, taking this central existence, as Esther just said, as the most serious and the most central. No one had done that. And in doing that, she accomplished the opposite. She undercut, the way in which she wrote it, undercut the character that she was speaking of. In the act of writing of her, as she wrote of her, she accomplished the exact opposite of what had been unaccomplished by everybody else who wrote. So there was no way that you could not take seriously this phenomenon, the meaning of this phenomenon. And, and as I say, it was, and this woman whom she is describing is not a pining suburban wife, is she? She is a woman who is a communist, a working communist, uh, who, for whom politics, certainly in this book, uh, is, is the, the central focus of her life, not literature. Uh, and, and neither is love, although it is what drives her. But her, her central preoccupation 
is the Communist Party, is South Africa, uh, and, and, is the, and is the act of writing and is trying to figure out what it means indeed to be a woman alone. These are her intellectual preoccupations. And Lessing, speaking of a woman who is falling apart at every turn of the way because one man after another disappoints her, one man after another fails in the act of commitment, one man after another sends her out repeatedly into a frazzled alone state. Nevertheless, this woman commits to hundreds of pages the most serious and discursive discussions of the Communist Party, South Africa, a woman alone in London, every, every the Cold War, Reds in America, Reds in England, uh, uh, editors, uh, the film industry, on and on and on. There's nothing she touches, nothing, that she doesn't have dense, indeed, endless, unparagraphed pages to write about. I was a red diaper baby. There was no one who wrote about the Communist Party as she did, no one. It was stunning what she wrote. I mean, it isn't stunning anymore. But in 1962, to see committed to print the simple open discussion of the fact that communists spoke differently in meetings than they spoke one-on-one -on -one or two-on-two -on -two or three-on-three -three was really something to see. And then the other fantastic thing, sex. This is a double-edged sword, right, in the Golden Notebook. The work is soaked through with a tone of languorous depression. <laughs> it, is, it is the languor and the depression of the intelligent woman caught in the toils of sex. Se <laughs> and it was exactly the way it was. <laughs> it was exactly the way it was. It is, rereading this book in this last week, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry most of the time I laughed, but <laughs> It was shocking to, to read and see again the minutia of that description on the page and to recognize down to the last exhausted endurance uh, what it meant to be such a woman. No one had written. So these two great things were, were done uh, in the service of describing a woman who is free, quote unquote. Now in the long history, since Mary Wollstonecraft and in the long history of feminism coming and going over 200 years, every time it surfaces, there is an, another label, right? It's another description, another word for the new woman. It's the odd woman, the free woman, the new woman, the liberated woman, right? So in, in Lessing, it's free. But every one of these is a bittersweet term. I mean, none of, none, of it is, none of it is the simple truth. And when the simple truth is here, we won't be free women, liberated women, odd women. We'll just be. But her free women was really a, 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 bitter, uh, uh, a bitter thing to me. Uh, even when I was a kid and I first read it, and certainly every time I have read it since. Now, this is the part that I mean about no one could have written this book today because along with all the other things that she has been so discursive about, has, she, has, she has been um, immensely full in, in describing the feeling of this extremely intelligent, uh, talented, driven, um, um, working woman, uh, the endless, endless preoccupation with her need, 
for, a, for love, with her need for a man, a sympathetic man, one man, the only man, the real man, the true man. Uh, if Lessing was any less dry in her prose, we would have D.H. Lawrence on the page in a second, and it's frightening to see that. And I just want to um, show you a little bit about what I mean. So I, oh, huh? Oh, it's past time. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I got it. I have to. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to go on so long. I'm just going to read these quotes very quickly, and you'll see in a minute the the, the great contradiction of the book, and uh, and wherein lies its power. She has two sets of characters she refers to repeatedly, uh, Anna and Molly, uh, which is her, clo the closest to Doris Lessing herself, and then the characters in the, in the novel that Anna is writing named Ella and Paul, and they are incarnations of the same woman, of the same people all the time. Early in, in the book, uh, in the first opening section, Anna and Molly are sitting together, and sometime in their, uh, in their afternoon, it's clear Molly wants to get into a man-hating session with her. And Anna says, if I stay now and join in a what's wrong with men session, Molly and I will feel warm and friendly, all barriers gone. And when we part, there'll be a sudden resentment, a rancor. Because after all, our real loyalties are always to men, never to women. Later on, Ella, speaking with her friend Julia, is discussing Paul, her lover, and clearly has let down her hair and is prepared now for that disloyalty. She will criticize him freely uh, with her friend. But she defends herself by saying, but she does not feel disloyal because the world of sophisticated insight has nothing to do with her feeling for Paul. This feeling is overwhelming and is detailed. At the end, when he leaves her, the consequence of this overwhelming feeling is this. What is terrible is that after every one of the phases of my life is finished, Ella writes, I am left with no more than some banal commonplace that everyone knows. In this case, that women's emotions are all still fitted for a kind of society that no longer exists. My deep emotions, my real ones, are to do with my relationship with a man one man, but I don't live that kind of life, and I know few women who do. I am always having, as it were, to cancel myself out. When Michael is leaving Anna, the same duo, Anna writes exhaustively of this in her diary, very intelligently uh, analyzing it, and then berates herself in the same way. How ironical it is that in order to recover myself, which is what the writing has done for her, I have to use precisely that Anna which Michael dislikes most, the critical and thinking Anna. And here is, here is the ultimate. Ella when she first falls in love with Paul, Wright says, when Ella first made love with Paul, what set the seal on the fact that she loved him was that she immediately experienced orgasm, vaginal orgasm, that is, and she could not have experienced it had she not loved him. It is the orgasm that is created by the man's need for a woman and his confidence in it. As time went on, he began to manipulate her externally. Very exciting, yet a part of her resented it. 
because she felt that was an expression of his instinctive desire not to commit himself to her. She felt that without knowing it, he was afraid of the emotion. A vaginal orgasm is emotion and nothing else. The vaginal orgasm is a dissolving and a vague, dark, generalized sensation. Clitoral orgasm is not the real thing. There is only one real female orgasm, and that is when a man, from the whole of his need and desire, takes a woman and wants all her response. Everything else is a substitute and a fake, and the most inexperienced woman feels this instinctively, immediately, and all the time. All right, well, my time is up, but anyway, the book is filled with that. And you get the idea. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have done others. Mary Gordon. I wanted to talk about my experience of the Golden Notebook as a reader and a writer. Um, I first read the Golden Notebook in 1969 when I was a junior in college. So the history of the, my reading of the Golden Notebook is all tied up with the history of my formation, not only as a writer, but as a reader and as a feminist. I remember reading the Golden Notebook and feeling that my life had changed. And that's a feeling I've never had before or since with a book, but I have loved many books, many more than the Golden Notebook, and they have been much more important to me. And that's the paradox I want to talk about, that the Golden Notebook is almost not a book for me. Um, so it, it, it's almost for me, it was like an overhearing, a conversation, a set of suggested terms that could open out into life, that could take in life. Now, the Golden Notebook came into my life at the beginning of my life with men, or boys, I guess they were, but it didn't matter. It wasn't going well, and before I read the Golden Notebook, I thought it was all my fault and that I could only speak about it mournfully as if it were a sad misfortune, like a hair lip or a club foot. But then I thought if Anna and Molly were having versions of the same troubles that I was having, maybe there was a larger problem. And then the women's movement came along. It was in a process of coalescing at that very moment for me. And it suggested two ideas, or it reinforced two ideas, that the Golden Notebook has suggested for me that I'm still in the process of trying to live through as a feminist reader and writer. I have lived through them with very, very little success because I think Vivian is right that uh, Doris Lessing opened doors that most of us can, uh, can't. And what I want to talk about is why we might not choose to follow those doors that are suggested by Lessing. But I think the two large terms that the book suggested for me are the idea that the lives of women in their small details are a permissible and indeed an important theme for literature. That was very, very new, even in 1969. And second, that the private and the public worlds are inevitably connected and that the shedding light on this connection is a crucially important task. I think that women writers have succeeded much more fully in addressing the first of these questions than the second. Uh, with the exception, perhaps, of Krista Wolf, I don't know of any writer, male or female, who has done the kind of deepening job, who has deepened the terms that Lessing suggested. Well, the Golden Notebook said a lot about sex, as Vivian said, and that was very, very important to me in 1969 when I was 20. 
There was sex as a physical phenomenon, but more than that, it was sex as an idea. And it was an idea that was described in terms that gave full weight to, it, to its complexity. When I was at first reading The Golden Notebook in 1969, women were being told that what we ought to want was just what men wanted, that is to say, as much sex as possible with no strings attached. And I was really trying to believe that, but it made me very unhappy. And I remember that in my dorm room in 1969, I had a quote from The Golden Notebook on an index card above my bed. And what it said was, it's a sentence Anna says to herself as she's about to take a love or she doesn't love. And above my bed, I had the words, there is only one real sin, is that it, and that is to persuade oneself that the second best is anything but the second best. <laughs> um, that was the sentence I took out of The Golden Notebook at that time. But The Golden Notebook is really about four things, sex, politics, writing, and madness. I have to admit that in 1969, the sex part was the most important for me. <laughs> now it seems to be the least important for me of all the subjects in the book, that is to say, as a reader. <laughs> um, history changes one as a reader, particularly as a reader of a book that teaches general truths from a presentation of particulars. So when I reread The Golden Notebook this time, it was with a, a double vision, at least a double vision. First, it was with gratitude that in an age where I feel like our basic posture towards sex is weariness, when we're very frightened of desire, when women in particular have on the whole understood that it's a better bet not to center too much of our lives and hope for sexual happiness. Lessing's Anna's assertion of the enormously vital and joy-inducing properties of sex, even when it makes her miserable, she's only miserable when she's not having it. <laughs> Anna really has a good time in bed, even when she's not being satisfied. She likes sex, and I thought, that most of us have lost that belief. We've lost that faith in the energizing and hopeful and vivifying properties of sex. So it was, it was kind of enlivening to read it. But on the other hand, Anna's understanding about things like vaginal versus clitoral orgasm, it seemed to partake to me of a semi-mystical mumbo-jumbo that I couldn't take seriously, and so it kind of undermined my faith in what she said about sex in general. I felt like I was going in for cupping in an age of antibiotics. Um, and even as I read about the sex, and even as I rejoiced in the liveliness, there was, I was really turned off by the kind of fatal passivity that Lessing seemed to express about the nature of men. They're all crazy, they're all bastards, they'll all leave you, you take what you can get, and there is nowhere in the Golden Notebook the idea that men can and must change and that it's part of the enterprise of women to expect that and to somehow be setting the terms for that change. The attitude of the women in the Golden Notebook seems to be get it at night and complain to your friends about what you haven't got in the morning. <laughs>
And so for myself as a novelist writing in the 90s, Doris Lessing opens up certain possibilities for me in writing about sex, gives me certain reminders of what my task is, reminds me that the lineaments of female passion, as it abuts on things like consciousness, ethics, as it partakes of the subconscious, as it leads into madness, as it has to do with the disintegration of the personality and the integration of the personality, as it has to do with connection, abandon, joy, separateness, as it moves in and out of the world, all these lineaments of female desire, which Doris Lessing suggested, still need to be traced. This is still part of the task and the enterprise of the woman novelist. But I could never even begin to trace them in the way that Lessing suggests because there is, to my mind, a pre-feminist posture of waiting and acceptance that no longer seem inevitable to me nor deeply true. So whereas I read Lessing about sex as a sacred text in 1969, I read it now with a much more partial ascension. And it's really not much help to me as a writer in my project of trying to write about female sexuality. There's a marvelous scene in which Anna's preparing to cook for her lover. She's rushed, she's on her way to CP headquarters to work, and then she realizes she's just got her period. Now, I can imagine how absolutely shocking that must have been to read about at the time. Menstruation was news in literature, but it's not news now. As a woman novelist, we have to think twice about including a menstruation scene in our novels because instead of the old, oh my God, how can she reaction, what we have to worry about now is, oh no, not again. So there are whole sorts of uh, decisions that are different kinds of decisions for a novelist writing now that were very different when, when uh, Lessing said about her task. What's very interesting and impressive to me as a writer about Lessing, however, is demonstrated in the complexity of that very scene. It's that the framework for Anna's decision whether or not to leave the Communist Party is woven in and out of an experience of the consciousness of menstruation and her tremendous anxiety that she smells. She keeps running down to the bathroom to pour water between her legs and running up to talk to her comrade about whether or not she's going to leave the party. And that uh, ability of lessons to weave the theoretical and the very, very physical in are to me a very sterling example of, of, of prose. I read the politics of the Golden Notebook very differently in 1991 than 1969. In 1969, we thought we were the new left, and the old left was a slightly embarrassing, irrelevant dinosaur with the unglamorous, musty smell of too recent history. It was like Naugahyde furniture or Studebaker cars. <laughs> now we've seen the whole tragic and perhaps, we don't know yet, exhilarating explosion of the Marxist world. And we read the Golden Notebook for clues about a great ruin, as if we were reading notes from the Jacobin or the Girondist. History has added shimmer to the political talk in the Golden Notebook, precisely because it is so utterly, utterly remote. And Fortunately, we are so utterly without belief in the kind of conversations that the party members engage in. It's a completely foreign experience to us. 
today I was trying to imagine what kind of dialogue I would try to write if I wanted to write a novel today that included politics. I cannot imagine myself including long dialogues about the imminent loss of abortion rights or about the ascension of David Dukes, and yet I believe as deeply as I believe in anything that racism and sexism are a disease that poisons every blood cell we possess, and I spend quite a lot of my actual time in working for abortion rights. But I would have too much literary vanity to write the kind of heavy-footed dialogue that Lessing does when she writes about politics. And here's a real paradox for me as a reader and a writer. I enjoy reading Lessing's literary dialogue because I'm glad to get the information. At the same time that I'm reading it, I'm always saying to myself, this is very bad writing. Um, Lessing is one of those writers like Dreiser who gets so much life into a book that it's overstocked, overfull, unrefined, a bit raw. Lessing herself speaks to that in the introduction to the Golden Notebook that she wrote in 1971. She says of the theme of madness that it was the first time she wrote about it. Here she says it is rougher, more close to experience, more valuable because it is rawer material. It's vulgar to say that there are two kinds of writers, the raw and the cooked, and to leave it at that. But the novel has always been a hybrid form with two parents that tug its tough little arms in divergent directions. One parent is journalism, and the other parent is poetry. And Lessing's novels, in their desire to get down the feel of the way we live, virtually ignores the shaping attention to language that would characterize the novelist more influenced by lyric poetry. She speaks about this herself when she sets out a kind of manifesto in the first of the notebooks. She sets up uh, six words, which she juxtaposes, ruthless, kind, cold, warm, sentimental, realistic. Um, what I really have discovered, though I don't know it then, is that in describing any personality at all, these words are meaningless. All that I care about is that I should describe Willie and Mary Rose so that a reader can feel their reality. She goes on about it at even greater length. She says, the function of the novel seems to be changing. It has become an outpost of journalism. We read novels for information about areas of, of life we don't know. We read to find out what is going on. One novel in 500 or 1,000 has the quality a novel should have to make it a novel, the quality of philosophy. I find that I read with the same kind of curiosity most novels and a book of reportage. Yet I am incapable of writing the only kind of novel which interests me, a book powered with an intellectual or moral passion strong enough to create order, to create a new way of looking at life. And indeed, I think this is the agenda that she set for herself, but um, note that Note that she doesn't mention a thing about beauty. She's a real rationalist, which is why her turn towards Sufism and, and, and science fiction is so surprising. And she believes in analysis. There are few gestures that illuminate a character or a scene, very few images that create the aha behind the ribs. That's why I think the early descriptions of the young communists in Africa are so effective, because Lessing's affinity for the African landscape and her understanding of the tragic 
insoluble quality of situations, the surprising poetic knot of Mary Rose's incestuous love for her brother gives that scene a kind of physicality that others lack. Lessing was far ahead of her time in speaking to postmodern preoccupations about the absence of the author and the impossibility of the coherent self. But she doesn't write from disintegration. She writes from the energy of a powerful mind trained by Marxism and Freudianism to analysis. This is her major literary tool, is analysis. It's a powerful mind linked to a lively curiosity. Um, I want to go on reading it and reading it, but I don't want to write anything like it. At the same time that I was reading The Golden Notebook, I read Mrs. Dalloway for the first time, and I remember one phase, phrase from that book, a trophy of nuts and roses. No phrase of Doris Lessing's has ever stayed with me, no aura that suggests that there is mystery behind all that can be said. And yet, in our inability to write about ideas, to write philosophically and morally, have we perhaps created the kind of literature of over-refinement, of lack of faith, perhaps the very kind of literature that Anna's comrades warned her against? Thank you. Wonderful. Elizabeth Janeway. I should explain that I sort of moved this way so I could see you all, not because I was trying to get away from you. <laughs> I've been trying to sum up this book and my thoughts and feelings about it for several days, and I really can't do it. I imagine that most of you here have read it, and if you haven't, do. There's an old saying, it may be Roman for all I know, that goes, out of Africa, always something new. Doris Lessing came out of Africa, and I think growing up there gave her a kind of benign double vision, so that truth and its shadows deepen the world that she sees. <clears throat> The Golden Notebook was published first 30 years ago, and some of it is naturally dated, but not the feelings nor the reality of emotional truth, only the facts. The sexual contexts, for instance, which are multifarious, take place without anyone being worried about AIDS. Television, as a major component of communication and entertainment, also lay in the future. I don't say it's as much of a curse as AIDS. In fact, it may be beginning to grow up, but it has no place here. The inhabitants of the book are, many of them, intellectuals and would naturally be readers and indeed scholars to a degree. But the news they wait for and discuss comes out of newspapers. No doubt we all still read them, but their importance to us has lessened. Third. Communism and membership in the party plays a major role in the ideas and worldviews of many characters, including the main ones. The book covers the period in which the Stalinist years destroyed faith and hope of Marxism as a road to a better future. It challenged received ideas, and it ended by challenging morality, that is Marxism. How much lying and destruction and terror could you put up with in the faith that, in the end, good would come of it? Communism here, as it was in reality in the 50s, was very much a moral issue, not just a political one. 
It hadn't occurred to me until I reread it <coughs> just now to think of The Golden Notebook as an historical novel, but it is, and it's a fine one, <coughs> for it encapsulates its time brilliantly and perhaps more important in a truly trustworthy way. But it tells us about the way people saw the world and felt its values and how they related its events to each other is immediate and insightful, unaffected by later judgments. Of Lessing's two heroines, it's Anna Wolfe who carries the weight of the story and of the consciousness that surrounds it, and Anna is herself a novelist. It is she who keeps the notebooks, whose entries tell most of the story here, and it's she whom I'd like to quote on the novel as shifting force in literature. <clears throat> and now we're going to have the same quote over again. The function of the novel seems to be changing, says Anna. It has become an outpost of journalism. We read novels for information about areas of life we don't know. We read to find out what is going on. The novel has become a function of the fragmented society, the fragmented consciousness. Human beings are so divided, are becoming more and more divided and more subdivided in themselves, reflecting the world, that they reach out desperately for information. It's a blind grasping for their own wholeness. Maybe that's not the quote. Maybe I have it later. I should tell you, perhaps, at this point, <coughs> this is E. Janeway speaking now and not D. Lessing, why this passage hit me so hard. I've just finished the first novel I've written in a number of years, and it's been turned down on the grounds that it's reportage and stale, because it is. It's late in the 70s, includes a married woman who gets herself a job and a young one who runs away from home and has an illegitimate child, and it seems to have been rejected because other novels have dealt with this situation. It also includes an angry, ghostly grandmother, but never mind, as reportage, it's old hat, and so its qualities as a discussion of people's lives are unimportant. I find that an interesting change from the way in which the structure of a novel and the function of a novel could seem to be repetitious in what happened, and yet because the people were different and because the view was different, it was a new book. Never mind. In The Golden Notebook, we find classic situations acted out by people whom we know and who are, nonetheless, often surprising, who show us unexpected aspects of themselves and their feelings. Anna and her dear friend Molly, Annie's daughter, Anna's daughter and Molly's son, their suitors and boarders are familiar but also capable of shocking us. We want to learn more about their feelings because we trust their actuality and assume naturally that what we learn here as reportage on race relations and class relations and making money and politics and business dealings and American men's affairs with British women is in fact importantly true for understanding the way that people deal with each other. One reason for the grip that this novel exerts on the reader, at least on this reader, is that Lessing is a risk taker. Like her two heroines, Molly and Anna, she's not afraid, afraid of danger because it's called danger. Let me come back to the sex, not because it's lubricious, it isn't. It's a revealing aspect of human behavior. Scenes that could be written in ways that would involve the reader in a kind of lecherous mental adventure are quite without that quality. 
They are there to tell us, not as reportage, but as psychological discovery about the full range of the way these characters feel and think and see each other and themselves. Our society speaks and writes and acts as if sex were really great fun. It's hard for us to take it seriously, unless we take it so damn seriously that we elevate it to not just a major, but an ultimate event, one that makes all the difference. Lessing doesn't believe it makes all the difference in the way, for example, that Hemingway described when the ground had to shake beneath the lovers. Lessing is with Lawrence here, D.H. <clears throat> it's lovely, it's great, it's a wonderful part of life, but so was writing and working at something that's important to you and friendship and dedicated political activity. All of those other matters are largely present in the Golden Notebook. Risk-taker Lessing mixes them up together. Anyone who had to do a scholarly precis of the action of this book would quickly go out of his or her mind. In fact, of course, the point of the title is that Anna keeps not one Golden Notebook, but four, black, blue, yellow, and red. They are there to listen to her different sorts of concerns and to harbor her thoughts and what she wants to remember of her life. And also, of course, to indicate that it is, like so many lives, indeed divided. The Golden Notebook is, the reader assumes, the one in which Anna's life, which has become very stressful, will finally be brought together. Well, surprise, she gives it away. Not without a pang, for it is a beautiful, specially ordered job that she's picked up from the store, uh, that wasn't picked up from the store, and is therefore sold cheaply. She gives it to Saul Green, an American writer who has been her lover, after first refusing to do so. In short, this notebook is one that Anna must choose to act seriously about. She wants it, and Saul tells her how to start the story to put down in it, which is the first sentence of the book itself about the two women alone in the house. But in fact, what she writes in is the first sentence of the book he is going to write. Untangling the knot of meaning here is exactly what the reader has been doing throughout the book. Giving the book to Saul is obviously a refusal of isolation. It's a sharing that is immediate and personal, unlike the deceptive sharing of long-gone idealism and communism and the betrayals of its also long-gone ideals. I guess we can all have our own other answers. Part of mine, at any rate, is simply that human beings aren't human without sharing and that the best thing to trust another human being with is something comes out of his mind and not yours. The question is how to avoid deception and distrust and lies in any enterprise at all, marriage or love affair, friendship or work situation, politics and dreams of a joint future. We can neither plan nor dream for somebody else. We have to let him or her write the first sentence of what is to be put down as the closest we humans can come to truth. I am sure that Doris Lessing would not mind if I closed my remarks with a quotation from an even better novelist than she, Miguel Cervantes. If that should not be cousin, I say patience and shuffle the cards.
Thank you. Margot Jefferson. Well, I believe I was the last person on this panel to read The Golden Notebook. I didn't read it until 1971. And I read it al alone in my small New York flat. And as I felt again rereading it these last few weeks, Doris Lessing was everywhere. <laughs> there was a tiny space that was me, <laughs> and the rest were these words on the um, page. But in the midst of all this presentness, omnipresence, um, I was struck at first by what was absent. And I'd clearly come to think of these absences as crucial to what being my notion of what an a woman, um, a still a feminist woman, but you will see why I say still a feminist woman, and a woman writer. Um, or she wasn't lyric, she didn't have access to the ecstatic, uh, she wasn't charming, and it was this charmlessness. And think of it as the way you'd use the word weightlessness, as a quality, not a negative, but it was this active, ethical charmlessness that I could nevertheless not patronize because it's very easy. Words like she has, she's so humorless, she's, you know, she's without, it's very easy to say that and she wouldn't allow me to do that. Uh, and it fascinated me because I couldn't stop reading. And all the writers I'd grown up with, and by growing up I suppose I'm thinking of high school and college, uh, they were all, in one way or another, one of these things. They had access to the lyric, the ecstatic, to a kind of wit that swept you off your feet, or to charm. And I'm thinking of people like Catherine Mansfield, Catherine M. Porter. She's a killer, but she's <laughs> charming and funny. Uh, Edith Wharton, very majestic, but social graces. Wolf. Um, <laughs> Um, Paul Marshall, yes, about her Caribbean women, um, there we are, and Toni Morrison, all of whom I was reading at this time. And I guess her style is what Anna Wolfe and also Ella call boulder pushing. Um, and yes, you are going to get another small Doris Lessing quote. It's a funny thing with Lessing, even the shortest quote seems to spread out, <laughs> but, but it won't. Um, no, no, just, just one moment. Yes, um, there's a great black mountain, it's human stupidity. There are a group of people who push a boulder up the mountain. When they've got a few feet up, there's a war on the wrong, or the wrong sort of revolution and the boulder rolls down. Not to the bottom, it always manages to end a few inches higher uh, than where it started. So the group of people put their shoulders to the boulder and start pushing again. And Anna, describes yourself as a boulder pusher, and Doris Lessing's style is boulder pushing. Uh, and that's what she wanted it to be. Uh, and I've, I'm still astonished, reading it again, that this pra prose, which Mary described so well, devoid of images um, with these sentences, one wouldn't put on the page. Um, it did exactly what she wanted it to do. It served her purposes entirely, and she was very sophisticated about it. Um, her intelligence was palpable, but this boulder pushing also gave her um, access to things that I had thought only this combination of charm and wit um, and lyricism could. She's heavy about it, but she makes plenty of subtle distinctions. She can come up with, at least through Ella, some wry one-liners. Some of you must know that wonderful short story, one off the short list, you know what it is. Um, 
And she has a very good sense of what the interiors and clothes, you know, and what people wear, do and mean and say. I'm a real, you know, instinct for this. At the time I was reading Lessing, I was, had just entered graduate school, and I was in school in, graduate school in journalism and not English literature, which I'd once thought I might be. And I was extremely anxious, despite the left and the 60s and all the things this had taught me and feminism. I was very anxious as I sat in my studio apartment near Columbia, reading women writers obsessively and doing my journalism assignments, you know, learning how to do fire stories and such, and also trying to learn how to find a critical voice. I was terribly anxious about things like the distinction Mary drew between you know, poetry and journalism, both yanking at a novel's um, arms, about what I thought of as serious writing versus very possibly worthy and earnest, but disposable writing that we called, one, had, one called the legacy from you know, earlier periods of criticism, middlebrow, deadly middlebrow. This is what, what critic was it? One of you can tell me, very august. This is what he meant, middlebrow, when he announced in the early 70s that the decline of the MLA could be, was embodied in the fact that there were so many panels on think of them yoked together as in the defiant ones, Doris Lessing and Virginia Woolf. Those two things marked the decline of the MLA. Um, and I was very, very concerned with how one could fully be what one was, um, one's history, one's, one's background, as we used to say, um, and not be patronized in the larger world. Um, I suppose of letters is what I meant. Uh, and I couldn't place Lessing, and that was a very good thing for me. She was very serious, she was middlebrow, she's an African novelist, she's a British novelist. She's very, in her own way, very committed to the life of literature. She loves Meredith, for heaven's sake. You know, she always has <clears throat> useful things to say about, about other writers, about literature, about the relationship between good criticism and good fiction, and yet she is an extraterrestrial. You know, if the terrain is literature, you know, she's coming from some other country on the map, and she's here on this ground, and she's plotting it out and laying the markers in her way, and as we now know, she's going off eventually to another planet, and there's no way around it. Uh, and, and that was all very uh, disorienting, but very valuable to me. She was, and she uses these, these words, it's a very short lesson sentence, about one of, one of the many, one of the several crazed and damaged American men who go through this novel. But this is very true, and it resonated for me in, in many ways. She was the, she's the inhabitant of a country of desperation still uncharted by Europe. Uh, and I think that's, that's wonderful. Um, and that's, that's Lessing. Um, it was exhausting this time around also, um, grueling. I'm not surprised I hadn't read it in 20 years. Um, and I may not read the Martha Quest novels um, for another 20, though I probably will. But um, whole lines, uh, whole lines, it doesn't seem like a great deal, but 20 years later, not just scenes, lines, I suddenly realized I'd been carrying them around in my mind for years and hadn't remembered they were from the Golden Notebook anymore. You know, they just pulled me back in, and I felt again how honorable and trustworthy she is. And this has nothing to do with agreeing with her, um, because one argues wildly. Um, and Vivian read <laughs> some of the most potently... Um, I was cut off. I had to... <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, enraging, upsetting, um, you know, that sense of depression, that sense of things we can't do anymore um, in our lives 
alone with others. Um, and nevertheless, you know, she, she does insist on her, the rhythm of her own questioning and her convictions and her revelations, and it wears you out. But, and this is what's also interesting, uh, she does insist, and you have to ponder, and you have to take everything she wants you to take seriously, but she never obliterates you, which writings dealing so much with ideas, um, coming so close to didacticism, you know, writing of Marxism, race, um, psychoanalysis, she doesn't obliterate you, she doesn't ask you to submit yourself, to yield up something of yourself as the price for taking in what she has to offer. This, it seems to me, is still an astonishing thing and a very, uh, an astonishingly difficult thing for any writer to do, to simply give that kind of generosity amidst, um, you know, this utter conviction. Um, and I think writers who are more obviously, seemingly pure aesthetes, you know, they're working with the same things. Submit, you know, bow under, obliterate yourself, or you don't belong here. Um, when, um, and yes, one argues about her, with her. I, you know, was very angry at the um, sort of upsurges of Lawrence, um, though, you know, this has its own seductiveness, I suppose. I found myself suddenly um, arguing over seemingly small things, like um, a tiny little passage about Louis Armstrong and Bessie Smith. And I went, well, they're not uh, so good-humored as you think, miss. Um, <laughs> um, and then um, in that typical Lessing way, she, of course, gave me more. Um, I thought I was going to be trapped in some kind of you know, 50s jazz critics version of dark laughter, um, you know, embodiment of what we've lost. And of course, she gave me more. Um, she tied it to something in America, as um, Saul says, um, that had lost. She tied it to bebop and cool jazz and how this, you know, this evoked something in a different world entirely. She went past what I expected. But this brings me to something else, because um, after Vivian called and asked me about being on this panel, I said yes, of course, and got very interested in rethinking and rereading and refeeling Lessing. Um, you know, suddenly I thought, race and Lessing. You know, I am an African American woman. She is a white African British. You know, I have to address this, and I was very um, unsettled briefly because this was not looming up in any of my recollections of the book as some, I wouldn't even say impediment, but some you know, um, ground that had to be um, charted and struggled and worked out between us. Um, and rereading the book, um, I saw why. Um, it's not only that, of course, race is not as, as foregrounded, as center stage in the Golden Notebook as it is, say, in the Martha Quest novels. Uh, but what it is, is again, it's, it's linked to that sense of trust one has. Um, what Doris Lessing does about race, about Marxism, about sex, uh, being a woman is, she, she, uh, she's so unfearful of being utterly clear about her thoughts and her feelings and their complications and what seems noble about, and then, and then shameful, and her vulnerabilities, uh, and she keeps asking more questions, and she keeps laying out more responses, and that doesn't just clear a space for you or for me with whatever the particulars um, of, you know, one's history, um, social, racial, sexual are, doesn't just clear a space, it assumes a space for you. Um, in other words, um, 
as you, as you, you know, any person, author you read, any writer you read, you're imagining them. And often the question is, and you know, this is such a big question for any anyone who's a feminist. Um, and it had been a huge question um, for those of us who were involved with the Black movement too. Um, are you imagining someone who has any capacity to imagine you? Um, and you walk into Lessing and you think, well, by God, if I or any of you walked into her novel, <laughs> you might not like what everything she did with you, but she would turn the full force of those questions and that those brains on you. And she would ask you, and she would tease it out of you, and she would um, wait and listen and watch, and she would do her best, and she would come out with a full imagining of you, however you might rework um, or change it. That, to me, also is... Um, very remarkable, very impressive. So, you know, one says, well, yes, you know, here you are. How, how interesting that I am seeing what it's like to be this particular woman born in Rhodesia, uh, now Zambia, with certain longings and privileges and guilts and curiosities, and now um, I can move on. Um, you know, because it's just a given, um, you know, that she allows for me, I allow for her, and then we can go on to many other things, to our larger temperamental differences, I suppose. Um, I do wish that I were still, I were reading the more recent Lessing. I haven't read a Lessing novel probably since Memoirs of a Survivor, early 70s, maybe one other. Um, I don't seem to want to live with her where she has since gone. Um, this in no way allows me to forget or belittle or patronize her. Um, I just felt very strongly how much I wanted to honor her because what she made me do again. Um, she made me want to because the way, the, the book is the embodiment of wanting you, the reader, to use all your faculties when you read. And, and I felt that every single one of them, even those faculties that I treasure that are going in a very different direction than Lessing, um, that every one of those faculties has to be strengthened and honed um, and written out. So, you know, I closed the book and I thought, all right, Doris, I'll leave you the way Anna and Molly leave each other. Um, the two women kissed and separated. Um, I wonder if uh, Pam can turn off the heat. I think some of us are uh, developing icicles on her nose. Uh, I mean, the air conditioner. Um, I'd like the panel to address uh, each other for a few minutes, and then I'm going to ask you if you want to uh, talk to us, if you'll come up with your card or your memory and uh, expeditiously question whoever interests you. I think uh, there are many things that you will want to address uh, one another about, and certainly Margot's reading of the last line of these two women separating and going their separate ways after the paperback 666 pages, whether or not uh, one marrying and the other giving up her art, giving her golden notebook, her mythic self to an ex-lover, whether or not in the end uh, Lessing betrayed us, but uh, will, and also whether or not whether we see in that early lessing, the present lessing, whether there is a continuum uh, of topic of concern, but uh, please talk to one another, whatever uh, your topic is. 
Well, I'll, I'll speak to that. Um, uh, first of all, I, I, before I do address that, I'd like to say that I think that um, Margot's point about um, the, w the way in which Lessing's infamous clumsiness as a writer <laughs> is actually used uh, to brilliant strength. Uh, I, I really want to echo that a lot. I do think that uh, she is, uh, you know, quote, one of the great so-called bad writers. And the thing that is important about novel writing is that so-called good writing is sometimes truly, truly not to the point. Dreiser was a good analog. Um, um, there, we have many powerful, powerful writers whose, whose power resides in the dedication of finally allowing about the lucidity of intelligence to be the art, and that is what she—that's what she is all about. It seems to me that she will not stop, exactly as Margot so wonderfully put it, until both you and she understand exactly what is being spoken of. And she goes on and on and on in this way. And you can't—and and people are divided on this. But I also found it, especially this last time around, her fundamental character as a writer. It—it—it it, it became her writing tool. And as Margaret says, she used her so-called, I, I think when she writes about, uh, is this journalism, is this, um, she, she is saying, I'm going to use an analytic intelligence so well, so exhaustively, so lucidly, I will make it art. And it seems to me she does. I don't think it has anything to do with journalism at all. Um, the question of whether she betrays us at the end, I, I don't agree with you, Elizabeth, that she gives her, the golden notebook to Saul Green in a spirit of, of sharing. I think uh, she, is, uh, she, she is defeated in that. Um, she gives the golden notebook because she can do no other. She remains consistent until the very end with this extraordinary searchlight, this portrait that she draws of the woman of that time. I mean, that's what I meant when I started this by saying, it was an encyclopedic portrait of everything that we were at that moment. Nobody could say more. And in the act of saying everything there was to say about it, it was, she was saying it because it was beginning to give. In the act of saying it, we began to lift ourselves from that very thing that she was describing, which was exactly the same from beginning to end. She is in thrall to, to men for a lack. It's not a sufficient word. It really is not a sufficient word. She is, um, with all her, her extraordinary gifts, she is in thrall to a notion of herself as fundamentally um, not the possessor of a potentially first-rate life. Uh, that is what I believe she's all about and what the Golden Notebook is all about and what Anna Wolfe is all about, and that is why she gives the Golden Notebook to Saul Green. In the end, she cannot do it. He charges her in this now foolish, caricaturish, existentialist manner uh, with her own life. Uh, and she is uh, frozen <laughs> in, into this uh, relation and in the act. I don't think she betrays us. There was no us. 
She was, there was no us to betray. She is, um, uh, she is not a feminist. She was not a feminist then. She's not a feminist now. She was typical of most women uh, of, her, of, of her stripe who, for whom feminism was the ghetto, was the intellectual ghetto. A woman faced with, uh, with international communism or feminism could not a woman like that. There were very few who could. She is not, was not a feminist then, and she's not one now. Um, her great gift to us is to describe so fully and so penetratingly what we, what we all were then. You really had to be the brilliant exception to not be what, she had, what free women uh, is, all, what, what the Golden Opa is all about. And the, the brilliant exception was, was not to the point. She showed us, it's odd, Margot used the word middlebrow, which startled me because I think of her as a very serious novelist. But certainly, uh, the uh, the whole gestalt is middlebrow. What she has done is to is to give this uh, this all inclusive portrait of of a, of a profoundly intellectual middlebrow life. Um, so uh, yeah, I don't yeah I don't think she betrayed us. I think she showed us what we were and who we were. Yes, and I I think, um, however, that. And saying that <clears throat> she was sharing when she passed the notebook on, it wasn't that she was, it, it's a question of what she was sharing. I think she was sharing um, a burden. I don't think she thought much of Saul Green. And uh, she, uh, I think in a way, that she really did not want to write a story of her life and of reality, and that's what she was certainly trying to do. And I find her very trustworthy, very trustworthy. And I think that this was something which she didn't give away uh, uh, you know, in any sense, oh, I want to give you something so much as it's not for me. You take it. I used the wrong word, perhaps, in saying sharing. I am, um, I'm afraid that I sounded more critical of the Golden Notebook than I meant to be because I had a wonderful time reading it. And I think, <laughs> like, <laughs> like Dreiser, she's an enormously good writer, and we have very few enormously good writers. I keep comparing it, she's not a great writer, and I keep comparing it to something that I think is a great piece of literature, Catherine Ann Porter's Pale Horse, Pale Rider, mm. which gives us infinitely less detail, information, uh, analysis, probably less intelligence. Mm -hmm. But it opens up something that I think great literature does that Lessing doesn't do. That is the point of good writing, so that good writing is not a mere affectation, not a fervilo. Um, Porter's Pale Horse, Pale Rider makes us say, what is there that attaches to death? What is there that is there after all the language is gone? What is there that is impalpable and that will be equally true in 500 years? I think in 500 years, if any of us exist, Pale Horse, Pale Rider will have a kind of truthfulness 
about what it is to be human, whereas the Golden Notebook will be something about what it was like to be human at that particular time. Yes, I said it was a historical novel, yeah. and I think it is. And so I'm very nervous. I'm very uneasy in my own work and in, in criticism about the idea of mere good writing. That oh, I, um, I, would, oh. I would actually I would I agree with you. Um, what? But I think I agree with Vivian that she, by her courage to write badly, she gets done a lot of what could not be done any other way. So I think it's a paradox. It is mostly, paradox. mostly art is achieved in, in literature through through language, through the expressive and beautiful use of language. Sometimes it is achieved through through a powerful intelligence and a, and a great drive to say the thing that has to be said. Dries a burn to put down desire on the page and out came an American tragedy and, a, and six others like it. I mean, he was just, he just put one clumsy foot in front of another driven by that powerful need. That was the writer in him. It wasn't, it wasn't a writer of language. I don't, I don't mean, I don't have a principled position about any of this. Just, she's a writer in which I guess I feel the, the, the charge of unbeautiful language is not to the point. So th that's why, uh, that's the only reason I, I, I say, I, I think she uses her language, her intelligence as a tool of art. Because I, I guess for me, it does does achieve art. Uh, did you want to say something, Margo? You were. Uh, I think not. I'm still pondering um, the 500 years. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> no, no, it's very, it's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, no, not at the moment. I, um, I like to think that the Golden Notebook would still be remembered as more than historical, not with that incandescence, you know, that that is about. Pale horse, pale rider, but um, with a kind of um, extraordinary ugh, diligence. Already sounds like I'm condemning her. Um, with a kind of detail that does transcend what we think of as history and its limits. But um, enough. Well, I don't think uh, novels live long enough unless they do transcend their time as well as, mm -hmm. as represent them. Uh, we wouldn't be interested in the history that they're talking about if all they were doing was giving us the daily newspaper right. reports. I was going to ask whether any of you felt that the familial scenes uh, of the women and their children are convincing. Um, <laughs> No. Out, nor or what happens to the children in the end, and whether or not that in some way connects to the fifth uh, um, child. <laughs> no. This child, that's Throw good. It <laughs> Throw it open. I bet everybody has Yeah, I don't find them convincing at all. You don't? No. Do you, Mary? I, I, I did with Janet. I didn't with Tommy. Um, there was one scene when she That's talks cool. about lying, mm -hmm. with, lying with the baby, and you feel like there's the whole city out there and a lot of bustle, and then you're there with this quiet baby. Um, and, and then when, when, when they're you know, having supper on the bed, and the very intimate physical scenes between the mother and the daughter, I think, work. The Tommy thing is like, that's like the out first yeah. outer space novel that mm -hmm. Doris Lessing ever did, I think. <laughs> yeah. Kid kind of shoots himself, you don't exactly know why, and you know, yeah. 
it's nothing is made of it. It's very peculiar. Yeah. It, it's part of this whole uh, deus ex machina that comes in which she's trying to account for all parts of life. In other words, she's putting together um, this intellectual woman who is uh, sexy and a mother and this and that, but it's not real. Do the children punish the parents? Oh, the mothers. Tommy certainly does. And, and Judith does too. And Janet. Janet well, does Janet also right. by being conventional and wanting to go yes. to boarding school. Yes, but I think that's kind of a classic uh, feature of Janet's age at that point. I want to be like the other girls, you know, and, and yeah. dress like the other girls, and to be the child of an intellectual family is terrible. It's, uh, you know, they don't want to be set apart. Well, doesn't every parent at some point, forgive me because I'm not a parent, but I think I've seen this in my mother and have even felt it with my niece. Um, isn't it there one part of one that almost takes as a punishment any genuinely, genuine temperamental difference that a child manifests? You know, really different from what somehow or another one has envisioned or feels most instinctively at home with just momentarily. Well, speaking oh, as a parent, for <laughs> some it can take a lifetime. But yeah, <clears throat> speaking as a parent, I only had uh, boys, so it's hard for me to uh, not to have to see this across a gender line as well as as the generation line. But I was very much interested in in the differences between them and me, and in in the fact that I learned a good deal. Uh, about life as, as it was going on from their interests and friends and concerns. Well, we would love to have the audience join us. Um, um, Pam, do we take the mic? feel glad to be a writer, glad to be a reader, glad to be a woman, all those things that I'm usually glad of, but I sometimes need reminding of. Uh, a number of interesting issues were brought up, and I didn't really know where to start, but I thought what I'd do is just say one thing and then let you all talk and sit down. This issue of posterity and the issue of history, um, uh, what books are going to last, seems to me about who's going to be there to read them. And I do think that um, we have certain books that are about a human issue that transcends um, perhaps gender, perhaps time, perhaps place. But there's a great deal of literature, particularly in the second half of the 20th century, which has addressed itself particularly to time and place, to people's positions within a larger society. So that in some sense, society being discussed in the present has to do with how history will be perceived in the future. So that it seems to me that the golden notebook, one can disagree with or think, you know, I at this time in my life see things differently, but that it's really in some sense the bedrock that, that a lot of contemporary women writers stand on. And I think the fact that so many women writers are told that this is ground that's been gone over or it's ground that's not important still means that women's writing is in some deep sense ghettoized. And I think that it's important for us to remember, and I'd like to hear what any of you have to say around any of these issues, um, that the Golden Notebook may be seen as dealing with a historical time across patriarchal history, but according to our history, 
That was a groundbreaking book. That was Lindsay Abrams, who will be moderating the third panel of this wonderful series. <laughs> will the rest of you uh, identify yourself? Does anybody here want to uh, speak to uh, Lindsay's comment, question? Uh, was it a question? Was that a question, Lindsay? <laughs> I think Lindsay's perfectly right to, for us to remember the importance of it as a groundbreaking book, to remember what we thought we were allowed to write about before Lessing. Um, she really was, she's very brave. She's just, you know, she does what needs to be done always, what she perceives needs to be done, and she just says it. And she said things that we were told were not important. And after she said them, nobody could say they weren't important with quite that confidence anymore. So I think Lindsay's really right. I think of the shock of reading uh, the masturbating, the menstruating, the orgasm, uh, the judgment, the sexual performance of men. And uh, that all, I think, became incorporated in the way uh, we wrote. We were, not so, we were not so embarrassed anymore about who we were. Some of us became downright raunchy about it. I remember uh, coming to a book party and... I, uh, one of the books, I, the book I had written, her mother's had a, a whole menstrual scene in it, and, and uh, bringing the books in a, in a large economy-sized Kotex box, so she changed us. <laughs> Sorry. Next. Meredith. Oh, <laughs> Meredith um, Tax. Identify yourself. Meredith Tax. Um, I want to go back to 1962 and what else I was reading just before I read the Golden Notebook. There was only one other book by a living woman that I was reading, and that was Mary McCarthy's The Group, which was around the same time coming out in chapters in Partisan Review and various other magazines, and was very much the way I was being taught it was permissible for a woman to write at the edge in that she did write about her husband, some of whom were my teachers. And this was considered a little risque because they were clearly identifiable. But she did so with so much wit and on such a small scale that it was acceptable. And the thing that was not acceptable, I think, about Doris Lessing and the thing that I found most liberating was the scale of her ambition. That is, she was just as ambitious as the most ambitious men of her time. She was as ambitious as Norman Mailer, and she wrote about many of the same things. Um, she wrote about sex from a woman's point of view, certainly, but she also wrote about war. She wrote about race. She wrote about miscegenation. She wrote about communism. She wrote about, you know, the Cold War. She wrote about the end of faith. She wrote about all those issues that were the hot items at the beginning of the 60s, and that was something that girls were really not supposed to do, and that I myself, in my small, studenty way, was continually getting into trouble for doing, either with teachers or with my boyfriends, one of whom said to me, at about the same time, why do you always have to do these big structural essays? Why can't you write little lyric poems like other girls? And, you know, when I told this to some of my friends recently, they laughed at this misjudgment of character, but it didn't have anything to do with my character. That's not why he said it. It had to do with what it was acceptable for a woman writer to be like at that time, and she really broke the mold. I will always be grateful to her for that. That's nice. Bravo. Oh, <laughs>
was wonderful. This was huh? thrilling. Anne's Natal, sorry. The Doris Lessing uh, yeah, scholar I, in our midst. They, they all know how much I love Lessing. Maybe I don't. Maybe it's true. I love her more than anything you've said. I do think she's. Um, the greatest living writer. Oh my God! In English, uh, maybe there's some I haven't read. Yes, I think there probably are. Um, anyway, I I have a different feeling about the achievement to some extent, though I've honored her a great deal. And I was trying to think. You've made this wonderful list of all the things that came in the book that you didn't feel you'd ever read before. And it was a wonderful list, and I would just add one thing to it. I feel that there was a sort of an absolute before and after for me with The Golden Notebook, which I read somewhere in the mid-60s. I wish I could remember the exact year. I think before I read it, there was no possible way of thinking of what sexism was or the experience of sexism as something you would name or identify. And after the book, there it was. It's just an absolute before and after. Do you remember sort of like two-thirds of the way through it, she stops even telling you in any detail, and she starts doing very short scenarios. You know, you know, he comes back, he says this to his wife, she says that to him, then they part. Uh, next page, next scenario. She stops even filling it in. She just sort of lays out scenario after scenario of how you know, men do the dirty to women uh, in ways that are so grossly unjust and so obviously unacceptable. And it's like the end of something. For me, I read that, and I remember reading it, and I still remember those little vignettes almost as vividly as other stuff, which is much more filled in. It's because she just strips it away, and there was just nothing left except the, the gross injustice here and the absolute quality of the injustice of what happens between men and women. And for me, that was just a before and after. Then that was it. It was established that one could say such a thing and, and name such a thing. About this question of the, the style, for... Um, for me, those passages are a kind of stripping away, stripping away. Both before and after that, I feel that there's a kind of great boo-hoo that goes out about this sexism. Um, and what Lessing did for me that made me feel that she did have a great style was some kind of dryness, some kind of permission to pull back from it at the same time that she's buried in it. Mm-hmm. That uh, for me just works. I mean, for me, the two things happen at once. She, she, she's in the midst of it, just as Vivian so vividly described. At the same time, there's something absolutely dry and, and unsentimental about it, just mm-hmm. utterly uh, without. Um, um, she pulls back. It, it is planetary. It's it's far off. It is extraterrestrial. Um, and so, just a, f- a final word about that. If, if people have resisted reading the, the more recent novels in that sense that she's left the world, I would just recommend uh, *Marriages Between Zones* uh, three, four, and five, <laughs> which I I do think is one of the great and most mysterious uh, and fascinating contemporary novels. Mm. I like to add one thing to what Anne said about the growing uh, conscious feminism, which struck me just uh, when I was finishing the book in the last day or so. Towards the end, so in, and it has growing. For the most part, it is everything that we've all said it was. I mean, it's just this picture without it's, – it's, it's, it's in the tone of bitter accusation and disappointment. And then she begins, as, as Anne says, these odd little takes that are growing, growing. Towards the very end with Saul Green, with the endless Saul Green – he says to her, uh, I am a hypocrite. I don't want equality. Uh, I'm jealous of you because you wrote a book and you had a big success with it. I think, uh, you know, I, I really would like a world in which uh, women serve and men take. And uh, I, I like you making the coffee and, and being there, you know, in bed when I need it. 
Um, and she says to him, there's not one man in 10,000 who even begins to understand the ways in which women are second-class citizens, she says. Therefore, we love any of you who are hypocrites, but at least get it. And that was, is shocking because you realize that other thing that's been happening throughout the book, that she herself is slowly coming to a consciousness which only we will profit from. And that was an, uh, an astonishing exchange for me. And, and I, I think Anna's right about that, which I just remembered listening to her, uh, that that's and, happening. And that Romana Clef, a lot of us, several of, many of us know uh, who Sal Green is. And the uh, curious thing is he did write one small book after he married a leading British feminist and Doris Lessing, without the Golden Notebook, has gone on to do all the great work. So. Yes, absolutely. He came to nothing. Where, oh, no, we shouldn't say that. <laughs> he came to come on, come slight on, something. <laughs> Are there any more uh, voices? Come forward. Can you come forward? Is that hard for you? We, we can hear you, yes. But the thing is, it isn't recorded, and they're longing for this to be a historic event like the Golden Notebook. All right. I'm Myra Russell, and I teach literature, and I also had experience in literary criticism. I know that it's traditional to make comparisons, but and I can see the comparison with Dreiser simply in terms of style and clumsiness. But I can't see comparisons with either Virginia Woolf or Pale Horse, Pale Rider, both of which, of course, marvelous writers. But it seems to me that Doris Lessing was such a pioneer, such a groundbreaker, such a boulder breaker, as you said. Boulder push, I am. That, uh, what? <laughs> boulder push, boulder breaker. Boulder breaker. <laughs> That to compare her with Virginia Woolf, for example, whose sensibilities are so completely different, is unfair. And as far as Catherine Ann Porter, it's a different world. And does it matter which is going to survive 500 years from now? I think that Doris Lessing as everybody has made clear, was not only a pioneer, but opened doors for all of us. That's all. Right. Talk into the, talk into the mic. Hi, I'm Jan Claussen. Um, amongst the many wonderful things that you talked about that did set a kind of agenda for the women's movement, I feel a sort of looming shadow here, and I wonder if you could talk about how it is a shadow in the book or how it's perhaps comes in directly in some places, and that's the issue of love between women. It was a very homophobic book. I mean, uh, the only person she kicks out of the uh, house are, uh, is a, a gay couple, right? I mean, those are the only people who she finally, the only men that she's finally strong with. Love between women. Yeah, I was very shocked about that, uh, about the male homophobia, and I think she really skirts... Um, love between women I just don't think it's it's an issue for her I remember a story of Grace's where uh, 
a lesbian character says, but you didn't put, you know, you didn't use my voice. You, um, and I think that was a voice she could not even have begun to hear. I think it's a notable, in 62, it's a really, it's a notable absence. I think that's another thing that would be very different for a woman writing today. It's a voice that um, is much more in the air. Um, and, and I think she just doesn't hear the frequency. Not at all. Um, it, that, that's a good point that Mary's making, that there's nobody today writing, no matter what your life is, no matter what your, uh, no matter what your own actual sphere of experience is, and no matter what your psychological um, contemplation is, who could write out of such a blinded uh, sense of things. Just look at what she actually does, which is to elevate the mysteries between men and women constantly. I mean, that's her bit noir. That's her, that's her thing. That's what makes us silly and Laurentian and all of I mean, not silly. I mean, just, but that she is elevating the mysteries between the real man, the real woman, the real orgasm. That goes through the whole book. The whole book. It is so antithetical to the spirit of women loving women or the information that has been put into the world by women loving women, men loving women. The whole, the whole immense familiarity with homosexual life that, that is all of ours now, ineluctably, so that's an, it was absolutely missing for her, just missing. And that's an astonishing thing to say. I think the whole notion of woman as a sexual agent rather than a sexual recipient Right mm -hmm. um, is is missing. Um, it's woman does not generate or own or name her own desire. She waits for that desire to be actualized, and I think that's connected with her inability to hear women loving women because she couldn't. She she doesn't really believe women are sexual initiators right. or agents or or own their own mm -hmm. sexuality in any way, I think. Which goes along um, with I the rest do, of the do just want to um I want note. to say that, oh, that I'm sorry. I, 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 oh I beg your pardon. I, I hadn't realized you go ahead, started. Bill, you go ahead. Well I'll be very quick. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be very quick. I, I I just want to say that there's so much in the book that I don't know uh, I, I think it's a little hard to blame her for not putting everything in, that's all. <laughs> um, two things, and typical of Lessing, as we noted, with um, um, her heterosexuality, the two things that really jumped out at me um, that were specific references um, to lesbians, one, it's either Ella or Anna, I believe it's Anna, says at one point, oh God, is it true, you know, that if I'm this desperate and alone in London, all women who start to hate men either are alone or become lesbians. And you go, oh God, 50s, you know, mm -hmm. psychoanalysis. And um, one winced naturally. Um, and then a little later, you know, again, I'm, I'm clearly offering it as some sort of balance, but I'm really meaning to say it's simply in that funny way that sometimes her antenna will give something that she's not even completely aware of. Uh, she's speaking of Mother Sugar, the, um, the psychoanalyst, and she says, um, Mother Sugar had told her something about the homosexual nature of jealousy. And Anna wondered, do I really want to sleep with this lover of whoever's lover? And I thought, well, okay, it's cast in this very formulaic kind of Freudian textbook way, and it's through Mother Sugar, but 
just for a moment, a slight window opened up that Anna then doesn't proceed to follow, but mm. just a flicker of something. Um, Lessing got from somewhere that, you know, of course, it's um, up to um, us to take wherever we wish. Bede, did you want to say something? Wait, where's the... Uh, come on, your hand. Sorry to... This is... There were two comments I want to make. One is on the homosexuality piece, and I think that what you should remember, what maybe most of you don't, is that homosexuality was considered the plaything of the rich. And as a member of the CP, it was absolutely appalling for anyone to even suggest that they might have um, any kind of feelings for the same sex. Um, I can remember that myself right. at 14 at the, right. at, the YC, at the YCL and uh, shying away from it because it was really the most, probably one of the most terrible things one could do was to in any way show that you had any, any other than very sisterly affection for another woman. But I think that, that was part, probably part of where her own, where Doris Lessing's own attitudes politically, it was very politically incorrect to be gay. The other thing I want to make, which has nothing to do with that, is that there are, it's been interesting to me in the visual arts what's happened because of Doris Lessing, and it has happened much later than Doris Lessing, in which women have used their own self as a way to show what they think and how they feel through visual means. And there are in particular two artists that I can think of very clearly, maybe three, one is a woman named Ida Applebrook, who's now having a show at Ronald Feldman, in which she used a series of scenes in her early work particularly, which goes back about 10 years. She used a series of scenes, almost like a comic strip, in which she used this paired away idea, visual, of sexism, which was not obvious and was not, uh, was not um, clearly defined, but you began to understand what she was saying very early on in the visual, the uh, feminist visual art movement. The other one is Dottie Addy, who also uses that same kind of thing, only she uses words. And of course, Nancy Spiro, who also uses words and these images that are picked up the way those last scenes of Lessings are in that stripped away image of scenarios as they come along. It was just a comment I wanted to make. Nice. It's very smart. <laughs> <laughs> That's my friend. <laughs> uh, are there any more, or are we ready for wine and uh, refreshments? Uh, do you want to say something? Yes. I'm Elizabeth Tannenbaum. Um, it occurred to me as we were speaking of comparisons that I see a kind of split between the novel of sensibility, the Porter and, and Wolf examples, and uh, it seems to me that, that uh, the um, contrary to that would be Lessing as, as a, uh, an heir of George Eliot, and, and particularly Middlemarch in The Golden yeah. Notebook. Uh, a lot of the, the kinds of descriptions that were given, even the question as to whether she, quote, betrayed us at the end. And I wondered if anyone would like to comment <laughs> on that. Good point. Nice. <laughs> it's great. Very nice. Very smart. <laughs> Did she betray us? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. In, I think it's in the Golden Notebook. Does she call? She herself calls George Eliot the rich man's gissing. <laughs> well, and she says she suffers, or she says it in the introduction from Mom um, in, in a Victorian age, having to be good, having to be right. moral. 
Well, let me thank this uh, exemplary and terribly intelligent audience. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> and right outside, uh, they're waiting for us. <laughs>